Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Before you get to the show, make sure you check out theringer.com for our extensive NBA playoff coverage leading up to the NBA Finals. Also look out for a 2019 NBA Draft Guide, which now features 50 of Kevin O'Connor's scouting reports. The Draft Guide has a first-round mock draft, big board rankings from our draft experts like Jonathan Charks and Danny Chow, and much more to come leading up to the draft itself on June 20th. Once again, check out The Ringer's 2019 NBA Draft Guide and all of our NBA coverage over on TheRinger.com. Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. This is the second podcast we're releasing this week for the month of May. We are releasing two podcasts every week for our celebration of our year anniversary. Thank you again for the support. This week's episode features another chef partnership. Earlier this week, we spoke to Chad Robertson and Chris Bianco. This one is much different than the one we featured. Our guests today are Claire DeBoer and Jess Shadbold, who are the chefs of King Restaurant in New York. Together with Annie Shi, who runs Front of the House, they serve really simple, really delicious food that you just want to eat. And the funny thing is, when you just say really simple, there's nothing fucking simple about it. That is probably the hardest way to cook, in my opinion. And simple means really damn difficult. And it's something that has a pulse, and they change their menu. And there was a great article written by Tejo Rao, and uh, I think last summer about a day in the life of what it's like to operate and run that restaurant. It's a terrific restaurant in the West Village. And a lot of people hear the word simple, and again, they misinterpret it as easy. What's difficult about it is there's nothing to hide behind. It is as pure as you can be, and, and it's something that they've learned that I'm just learning now, much later in my career, that Putting more shit on a plate doesn't mean that you are more confident. It means that you're trying to hide stuff. And they've created a level of difficulty that they're reaching that is incredibly hard. So I give them all the credit in the world for endeavoring to sort of pursue purity in their food. And again, purity doesn't mean simple. It's just like trying to coax the best out of the ingredients that you have. And honestly, I'm, again, trying to get to that point where they're already at in their careers. So you have to be very confident in your vision and to execute it extremely well. Claire and Jess met as cooks at the River Cafe. The River Cafe is probably one of the most iconic restaurants in London, serving fantastic seasonal, isn't that redundant? Seasonal is sort of Italian fare, right on the... Thames River. It was founded and run for years by Ruth Rogers and Rose Gray, two of the most beloved chefs in modern British history. I love going there. I've been there a handful of times when I've been in London. And it's one of those restaurants where you don't understand why it's so beloved until you go there. And when you leave the restaurant, you're just like, I don't even know what happened. How was everything so good? How was everything so effortless? And it is one of the great places to dine in all the world. And people love it very much for good reason. So if you're in London, check out the River Cafe because it's produced countless and countless cooks and chefs that probably cook the food that you eat today without even knowing it. So it's really fitting that another partnership between young chefs would emerge from a place like River Cafe. And listen, if we just get more and more Ruth Rogers and Rose Grays in this world, food's going to be in a much better place. But Jess and Claire, they're doing something different. And it's in that same spirit of collaboration that they're fundamentally serving delicious food. And it's a team effort. And you're going to see probably more of these kinds of partnerships in years to come. Running a restaurant or multiple restaurants is just so much for one person to handle. I mean, we all work in teams. We all have quote-unquote equal partners. But like the idea of doing it on your own is so hard. You almost need someone to alleviate some of the dread, to share in the burden, to commiserate in the misery, because being a chef today is so much more difficult than it ever has to be. Besides the PR and the marketing and the business prowess, you're now having to be so much more knowledgeable about food and the food ways and techniques than ever before. It's just too demanding. So it's natural. And I think it's much more sensible to do this as a partnership. In fact, that's how I've always convinced myself into going into projects. I like working with teams. And if I had to do this all over again, I really wish I had someone like Jess and Claire to work with. 
So you're already seeing this with guys like Fabian and Jeremiah Wilder and Contra, and you've got Jessica Coslow and Gabriel Camara with their new project in Los Angeles, and there are many, many more chef partnerships around the world, and it's a trend that I hope to see more of. Anyway, I'll shut up now and let you hear the conversation with the chefs of King Restaurant in New York City, Jess Shadbolt and Claire DeBoer. Thank you very much. We are with Claire DeBoer and Jess Shadbolt. I love your names, by the way. They're very... <laughs> Where are you guys from originally? I mean, like, are my you guys... Dad's, my dad's Dutch. My mom's British. That's what I thought. Yeah. And yourself? Uh, I'm just a Brit. Born through and bred. Through. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a bit of Swedish in there somewhere, way back when, but... There's no uh, Dutch or Swedish in my bloodlines. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you guys are the co-chefs, the chefs of Restaurant King. In, is it the West Village or it's West Village? Or? We say we prefer North Soho, West Village. North Soho. Yeah. yeah. You have been open a couple of years? We opened in September 2016. So um, two and a half. Two and a half, yeah. Feels a lot longer. And you guys met working at the River Cafe? Yeah. Yeah. This has been an amazing run. And you got, I met you guys when you did the Edible Schoolyard, and that's. Truth be told, I have not been at your restaurant yet, even though I have tried a couple times. And I have been in L.A. <laughs> I think your Damn. wife's been there. She has she, been. Yeah, yeah, she counts. And uh, I knew you guys were the real deal when I seriously, when I saw you guys make dinner for Edible Schoolyard because you put more work into that than anyone else. We actually closed the restaurant down to be there that first yeah. year. Yeah, and I was like, <laughs> that meant so much to me. And I could just see, like, Listen, if you're a chef and you're doing these events, you're so busy. You're always trying to put your best foot forward and make something delicious. But you guys did, you basically brought the restaurant. We, well, we, yeah, we, we, that was just because we had no idea what we were doing. And we couldn't, you know, King couldn't survive without both of us there because we were two out of the three people on the line. So we've come a long way since then. But we opened, I mean, that we opened in the September yeah. and the edible event, I think, was in the April of the following year. So we were pretty... We were six months in. Six months yeah. in. We still were definitely trying to find our feet to a certain extent. We, you know, you always are each day. And we were so stunned to even have been asked to be involved. And we were like, oh my gosh, we've really got to like bring this. Because we were in a room with all these totally legitimate, badass chefs. And we were like, what, what are we going to do? And obviously the, the restrictions of, of those kind of events, there's no kind of water, very limited heat supply. So we tried to keep it Super simple. Actually, we were kind of thought it was a bit too simple. Uh, I think we that's did always the case. Them, we were right? at the Cookies for Kids Cancer Benefit the other day, and we was we, our booth was next to Grant Ackert's, <laughs> and it was just awful. <laughs> I we mean, were like, his, there were like five on. of them, like, and their service director, God knows what they were cooking, and they were just looking at us like slice this uh, they boiled had, beef brisket. Oh yeah, we did beef brisket. And they, you know, the, the looks that we were getting, we were just like, oh, I this think never gets easier, does it? Because <laughs> they had a lot of tweezers yeah. and we were sort of attacking it with our with our hands in gloves, I should have. But I think, you know, so often we're up against, we, we find ourselves in these situations where these, also, you know, amazing chefs and with a lot of kind of, you know, their technique is very much on show in those moments and, Obviously, we believe in in sort of a real kind of delicious simplicity, and when 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 they're side by side, the the differences are extremely stark. And uh, Claire and I were, what was actually even it's easy because there are two of us, so we can have a laugh. I think if we were like alone, if we like, were alone wait. in this situation, I would have like we would have bolted. But also, what's funny about that day is that on the call sheet, it was like chefs team arrive at three p.m. <laughs> So obviously Claire and I arrive at 3 p.m. 3 p.m. And then it's all- chefs arrive at 5. So like we were there kind of, we were the first ones in there kind of setting up our stations, <laughs> hanging around, eating the stuff, sweet green salads they sent up. and <laughs> Unpacking. And then suddenly we were like, gosh, where is everyone else? And we realized that these armies of other chefs' teams were arriving and sort of getting the mise en place out. And obviously we had done that. There wasn't a lot to unpack. And then we were like, where is everyone? And then all the big dogs arrive at 5.30, all the, like, the chefs. And we're like, oh, right, we're supposed to have a team that does this bit for us. But it's a really magical thing to see and be part of because it just shows the breadth of how everyone approaches this whole thing. Um, Sorry. We can, by the way, talk a lot. No, I want you to talk a lot because I was just thinking, I was reminiscing how I've seen you guys do this and it was endearing to me because when I saw you guys basically bring it as hard as you did, even though you think it was simple, it's very clear 
this was what, two, two years ago, basically, mm-hmm. how much care you put into that dinner that most people have other people do for them. Like when I do these events, I have a team now that can set it up and you guys were still just like doing it. And you felt like this was, everything was on the line. That was very clear to me how, how, and I was like, wow, these guys are special. That's just immediately what I thought about because you don't see that that often. You really I think don't. it's because we were like young and inexperienced. And I mean, you hope to like retain that same like kind of passion and like authenticity as you grow and age as a chef. But I think it's like actually really hard. Like, everyone's asking us about when we're going to do restaurant number two or what we're going to do next. And I think the biggest challenge in thinking through that process is, you know, the first time you open something, it's like, especially because we were pretty young, there's a whole lot of passion there and a lot of naivety. You don't think about, you don't think about all the other principles at play. You don't even think about the business. You don't think about New York City being New York City, how it matters that you're reviewed and how many people are queuing up outside your door and all these like less attractive sort of elements of culture that make a business really successful. I mean, you absolutely can't walk into your second space without dedicating so much thought to to those things. And then, you know, it becomes much more of a business and much more of a game. And I think that's a really frightening transition that you can fail at. If the authenticity and that passion to bring it, as you say, is what really made you successful in the first place. The question that we're asking ourselves is like, what's going to make number two, if there ever is one, real? Coupled with that, I think what else is kind of unique in a way is that because obviously our menu changes um, twice a day for lunch and for dinner, everything we make, whether it be for one of these events or obviously for each service, is made that morning. You know, you we get in at Eight o'clock, we sit down, we write a menu for lunch, we'll write the menu for dinner that night, another, you know, the team will arrive, we'll give them their jobs, their jobs are different each day, their sections they're working on are different each day, and if they're on a double, they'll be working a different section that night, and so it's very difficult to strategize with that. Obviously, we we know what's coming in here and there in terms of our proteins, and but it's very difficult to get ahead because we're always in that moment. So whether or not we're arriving at Edible with a caddy of food that we've just cooked at the restaurant that morning, it hasn't been cooked three days before and is in quarts ready to go. Like, we were in there cooking it that morning, transporting it that afternoon. And that's the sort of same rhythm that we see in the restaurant each day. So, um, yeah, I think it means, as Claire says, looking to do anything outside of that is very difficult because I think it moves from being like a restaurant into something like like an actual business that can sustain without us being there all the time. You guys are, I think, incredibly special. And I mean that not to just throw like a false compliment. I, I really believe that you guys and how you set up your menu and how you guys have done your events and how earnest you are, that is a rare thing in the business these days, I think. And the fact that you have not altered how you operate to placate business investors or customer base, that's ultimately, I think, what's going to make you so special and endure in the long run because you have a voice. And the fact of the matter is, and I've wrestled with this myself, when you are in a room full of like the great chefs of the world and you're like, wait, am I up to snuff? Can I cook with these guys? (laughs) And I did this interview with Jerry Saltz, and it was mm. really reassuring to me because he's like, he said, technique is not like what you think it is. Technique is reinventing skill. And it doesn't mean anything other than, do you have a voice and are you doing something that you believe in, not like anyone else? And the fact of the matter is, it's cooler to me to do what you're doing than as much as I love Grant. Grant's a great friend, one of the greatest chefs in the world. Like, that's already a known commodity. Yeah, well, I think, I, I mean, what it comes down to ultimately in any case is like, how delicious is it? That's it. And, you know, so often we we taste, I mean, always we taste our food and we're like, oh my God, this is delicious. And like, that's <laughs> totally enough. It might not have required any technique. It might have, you know, modicum of sensitivity, but that's fine. And deliciousness like can come in so many different forms. I think you put yourself into like a different stratosphere when you're doing something that displays a huge amount of technique because you can so obviously fail. When there's like a huge intellectual component to the food, you have to be among the greatest of the greats for that not to 
actually like take over the deli- from deliciousness. Um, but there's a ton of but, technique to make the food that you're making. Yeah, yeah you make yeah. everything from scratch. It's yeah, amazing. yeah. But I think, I mean, I think the technique is 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 not necessarily in the classical sense. Although in the regional Italian food that we draw inspiration from, and same in France, obviously there are those classic sort of simplified techniques, and, and we definitely, you know, draw upon those. But I think the technique is just to have, in a way, like a bravery about sort of being able to put something as simple as sometimes we do on a plate and say that that's enough um and often we'll be in the kitchen together and we would have written a menu and then the first ticket comes in and it'll be the first time we've done a dish literally and we'll both look at each other and be like is that is that it and then we'll do it differently every single time over the course of the night and we'll finally get it right and then we're like oh that's delicious (laughs) but the thing is you know like that I think that that's what we've been taught is to kind of really have that that sense of like you know, as I said, bravery to be able to say this is this is what it is. It might can, only be can four you, can ingredients. Can you define what bravery is then? I mean, personally, I I think it's well to go back a little. I think that you know when we started out on this, we never sort of set out to reinvent a cuisine or a type of food that we hadn't seen before. Obviously, we wanted to create our own style and approach to that, but I don't think we ever wanted to reinvent a wheel. What we wanted to do was to bring this style of food and to kind of introduce this to a city that might not have seen it as much as we had experienced in Europe. And we wanted, I mean, think think that that was like a part of our mission. Obviously, the food is obviously hugely important to that. But I think the bravery is to say that that's enough and 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 to stand behind that and to say that a beautiful Tuscan soup that it might not look delicate and the most sort of appetizing of things but you know there's nothing more delicious than a Tuscan bread soup like lathered in in new season olive oil and for us that's enough yeah I think I think bravery for me is really kind of how I feel about it's kind of changed over this whole process of the two and a half years we've been opened I think when we started out I think that we were brave because um, just to do it. <laughs> just to kind of like open a restaurant which could so definitely fail and to do food that was kind of quite different, albeit subtly to the food around us in the neighborhood. But I definitely don't feel brave anymore. I think that when you have, you're brave when you don't know that anybody in the room is going to like what you do. But mm. as soon as you have the pile on of critics say yeah give you the stamp of approval and then you have all the people that come after that taking an Instagram of your thing then all the people after it have already been explained what you're doing why you're doing it what it means to have a piece of white fish poached on a plate with some white beans and some new oil and that's no longer brave that's now rote and Mm. you know we have the privilege of like the protection of like all the people that have said given us the stamp of approval yourself included now I think a lot of people don't, a lot of diners don't necessarily think for themselves or feel for themselves. And once you tell them, tell them what to like, they like that. So I think that we felt really brave at the beginning because every single plate that we sent out really meant something. And we had to convince every single diner to love us for who we were. We were two completely unknown chefs cooking in a city that has a million restaurants. And we were fighting to fill 20, you know, <laughs> do 20 covers in a night. And it was like this huge you know, emotional mission that took it out of you every single day. And that was totally awesome. I think that the bravery element, you know, like if you think about Alice Waters or people that were true pioneers, I think to be a pioneer yeah. in a time when you're when you're not following the status quo requires a lot of bravery. I don't think that what we do anymore is brave. I think that that like blissful, like exhilarating time period, that window's closed. I crave it desperately that feeling of like really not knowing how you're going to be received and really being on the edge. Yeah, being on the edge and like having to fight, have to, having to really fight for something. And you know, like the reason my my boyfriend or husband now, he always says to me like, why you know, every time I like start cooking a different style of food or my style changes, like, I need to open a restaurant that does this. You know, he's like, why do you need to open a restaurant? Why, just cook this at home. Just keep doing what you're doing. Just I'll have it for dinner. That's not the point. The point is that there's like this feedback loop that you get in our industry more than any others, especially like with an open kitchen like you have here, um, where you get to see your customers. You get to cook something and you get to cook it from soup to nuts. You get to fill it your fish, make your stew, your broth, and then you get to assemble it and put it on a plate and send it out. And, you know, we spend hours every night staring at our customers, watching them have their first bite. We don't even have to know these people. And we, you know, we're like, I tell everyone on Garmo, like, 
eyes on table 35 um, if I can't see them because I'm busy cooking something else. And I want to play by play of their facial reaction when they're eating, eating, taking the first bite of the fish stew. And it's like, that's why we do that because that the joy or the emotion or, or the disgust, whatever it is that you get is like an instant feedback loop. Um, to do that at home for people you love is incredible. And in, on so many days, I prefer that. But you get to, you get that feedback loop in the restaurant like 130 times a night with 130 different people, and that's really that's really exhilarating. But I think it's so much more so much more rewarding when you know that those customers are more truly feeling that, and not necessarily because they've been told to do so. Right. Um, and well, I'm sure you yeah, I'm sure you've experienced oh, that. Of course. Change. And again, like I'm getting the feels just hearing you guys go through this because. I use this in, in in very similar words to my own staff, and over the the many years of doing Momofuku, it's it's the the thrill of opening a restaurant, improving people wrong, and 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 improving that you have ideas that are relevant and it's worth fighting for. And it's so hard well, to do that these days because well, it's not though because it's hard because people don't want to support things that are new or different. And I think that you guys are in a place now where you've, you've crossed that first sort of threshold. Yeah. And you're in a new part of trying to be mm -hmm. brave and confident. And that is like building your brand, your business, your reputation, furthering your craft, and also making sure. And it's still, I think, the performance of making sure that every customer has that reaction that you guys want. So what do you guys feel like when a customer doesn't get that reaction that you're looking for on their face? I'm really <laughs> But it really often, depends I mean, how you catch us on a certain day. Sometimes it's just... Depends how much sleep we've yeah. had. But often it's like sort of real sadness. It's like the yeah. first emotion. And like, why? You can't, like, have, you can't have a sense of detachment when you wrote the menu and you've been there since 8 o'clock cooking the whole thing and or telling, you know, some wonderful person next to you exactly how to do it and you've tasted it. And There was a time when we would charge out into the dining room and be like, I'm so sorry, you just don't seem to be enjoying this. Can we, like, not in a way. But also that's way, like the power like, of, like, convincing someone, you know, like, content. you know, we had one customer being like, this steak's burnt. So I went out and I was like, hey, how do you thought your steak was burnt? Yeah, it's burnt. Oh, well, actually, you know, this is this is where we're going with this. We're trying to imitate a steak being cooked over the coals <laughs> in Tuscany. We're words. like, you know... <laughs> it's, it's maybe you just don't understand the power of the Tuscan heat. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's true. that's gone but, down know, in one of our classics. That, Often we'll we, be like, we've got, oh. we've got a lot better, I think. You know, when you talk about the emotional chargedness of that risk and that bravery that you take at first, you obviously care a lot more about. The, you know, yeah. we've simmered down a bit. I mean, um, but it was, but I don't think it was ever from an, an, an aggressive <laughs> point of view. Often it was just, you know, emotionally charged, and I think. Particularly with us, you know, obviously being total new kids on the on the block and sort of coming, arriving in New York City, we had, you know, we definitely had a lot to prove and we didn't want to sort of chirp about anything before we had like earned our stripes. And so people were coming to this restaurant with very little context. And that was so refreshing, quite frankly. Well, and maybe it let, let us get away with it a little bit. But, you guys um, basically just opened up. Yeah. With no yeah. fanfare. We didn't tell anyone. We were trying. Well, there wouldn't have been anything to fanfare about. <laughs> you know, like I've like, been cooking for two years. <laughs> she'd been cooking for three. We have no clue. Like we were just, yeah. I think that many of our peers or people that are just starting out might want to inflate their CVs to... Make it seem like they have something worthy for you to visit. In some cases, I add on my uh, my uh, month long stage at Ottolenghi to my resume. <laughs> yeah. Depending who I'm talking to, I'm like I worked at. I spent some time at Spring. <laughs> yeah, one day. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think what's actually really I thought what was interesting that you just said in terms of sort of continuing that 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 feeling of bravery. I, I actually we we've been talking a lot about this recently in terms of our staff and um, you know I think when we first opened, no one wanted to come and cook for us. We interviewed this one chef who arrived and he had three mission stars tattooed on his arm. And we were like, um, not quite sure this is the right spot for you because he was, he arrived, he like unpacked this sort of like chef's knife roll with like tweezers and all this sort of stuff. And we were there, he's, me and Claire and I don't even really have a knife in the kitchen. <laughs> and, um, and like, you know, as obviously time passed, a few more people who'd eaten at the restaurant, chefs, cooks, sort of like knocked on our back door and was like, hey, I had dinner here and I really liked it. And we were sort of really taken back by that because we were like, wow, these people actually have responded to the food that we're doing. And I think now the challenge is, or part of the joy of the job now is just to kind of introduce that style to chefs who have been in some more fight. We've got a, a young chef at the moment who was at um, the Jean-Georges and she first arrived and slightly confused by the whole thing, but was sort of intrigued by what we were doing. And she's been with us for almost a year and she's like, 
you see that change in the way she's looking at the food. The, the confidence way, with which she, like, yeah. just cooks it now. The way she's, like, she just cannot not take, she just wants to eat everything and she's as sort of greedy as we are. And, like, you know, and I think that's been a real transition in terms of who we've seen through our kitchen. And and the response, I think, young chefs now, I think there is a more of an appetite, particularly the ones coming from the culinary schools, some of them obviously want to go down one route in the molecular gastronomy and all that sort of classic French cooking. And then there's sort of also been this sort of, I don't know, move towards this sort of more simple, more delicious food. And I think you see but that more in the a, city as well. I think that there's a misperception that simple and simple and delicious is less difficult. Yeah. Which is not true, in my opinion. All cooking is on a professional level, can be incredibly difficult. But. And I think, you know, I think they're just equally trendy right now. <laughs> like molecular gastronomy and like this simple bare bones cooking has more in common than people think. Like they're both trendy because they're kind of pretty much inaccessible to the majority of the middle class. So that's, I think, something to be aware of. Both styles of cooking became in vogue when there were no longer like peasants eating beautiful bread Tuscan soups and that's something that we definitely think about. And I don't want to, like, virtue signal about the, no. how precious the simplicity of our cooking is either. Do you remember those early days when you opened? Much like yourselves, I had cooked professionally for four and a half years. And there were a lot of things going on in my life where if I was probably in a better place or if I got certain positions that I wanted, I probably wouldn't have done what I had done. And when you talk about the challenge of first starting King— and, you know, that uphill battle of just trying to discover yourself and just see what point of view you have. And most importantly, just surviving. It's funny. Nostalgia is a weird thing. At least for me, it was hell on earth. Mm. Every mm-hmm. day was hell on earth for many years, it seemed. But I look back on it fondly. And I keep on thinking that a lot of this is somehow tied into how we think about food today or just culture at large. I can look fondly on it because I suffered. Right, I think that a lot of people want to just skip that suffering completely. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay with it because I got to where I wanted to go because I think I earned it. And there was a lot of people along the way that were part of that like bandwagon as well. And I have to look back on it, not just in, in good, but also the bad, because I think there has to be that balance. And there was a lot of things along the way where I never thought we'd have a another day of service because there's so many things that happen as you guys know where you're just like that's it yeah. we're going to have to like close tomorrow yeah, yeah. we weren't the only ones <laughs> <laughs> and it never for me it never leaves and those beginning days I was so naive and so immature and I meant well but I didn't know how to communicate that yeah I think I mean I think having having sort of the playground of your own restaurant to make all these mistakes in is kind of almost essential because for those people that I don't think anyone emerges and has their own restaurant and they are fully formed. Perhaps those people that have had a career of 20 years and have just perfected themselves and have their own style. I think it's almost impossible to cook, to have your own style style. when you've been cooking within someone else's four walls your entire career. And to have your own style, not just in how you cook, but also in terms of how you lead. Mm. And you've really got to own your own place to understand really how you lead, how you want to treat your staff, all these things. And like, I can't imagine anybody kind of arrives on the scene, opens the place in this really stressful environment and doesn't make any or all of those mistakes. And I think it was such a privilege to have nobody know who we were. And I don't know how well-known you were when you started your first place, but to be able to be, you know, our first menus, you know, they're cute. Like we look back at them like little relics and we're like, oh my God. But (laughs) we wouldn't have got to where we are today without having this like anonymity and freedom to make mistakes make make so mistakes. many mistakes and put random things on the menu now we've got we've got our, really our own style that has differentiated us from you know where we were before in the river cafe but when we first started out we were just we were kind of like imitating you know we would read an elizabeth david right you, and it takes so long to form a to create a culture in your kitchen and we've made so many mistakes there as well you brought up a name elizabeth david for the listener that may not know who is she Oh, she's a sort of a seminal um, food writer and she has, you know, we refer to a lot of her books very regularly, French Provincial Cooking, An Omelette and a Glass of Wine. And I she, like reread that the other day. Yeah. It's hilarious. Like, she's she's very, she's, she's very prescriptive. I love how direct she is. I feel like she's berating me at yeah. every page. She's like, this <laughs> is like, how you will eat your bread will. and butter. 
you will never do this. And I'm like, oh God, I might have done that yesterday. I'm like, sorry, Elizabeth. Oh, she has she has recipes that are, you know, much less recipes and more kind of like guides Suge- and narrative yeah. suggestions and directives like how you could approach an ingredient or food. And I think that's very much how we cook in the kitchen. We don't have any recipes and it's all very kind of... So a new cook comes in, they're like, I want a trail here. I'm looking for a job. You don't give them any recipes. No. This is classic. Like yesterday. We just tell them what to do. And a new cook came in and I said, we were doing some polenta. And she sort of got the measuring jug out. And she was like, how many milliliters of water? How many grams of polenta? I was like, oh, uh... Absolutely no idea. idea. And she looked at me like I was crazy. And she was like, what do you mean? I was like, well, we don't actually have any recipes. So first of all, what's it going with? Two, like, how many covers do we have? How many portions do we need? What else is on the plate? Like, and I thought I was being the crazy person. (laughs) But that... But it's that thinking through of, okay, so the polenta, like, what's it with? Like, how wet do you want it to be? How salty do you want it to be? Like, how rich do you want it to be? Is it having cheese? You is know, it like how much do you want to put on the plate? Is it going with something really heavy? And we try and teach the people that cook for us how to taste and how to think about an ingredient from start to finish. You're teaching them how to improvise. Yeah, and, and, and how to cook and how yeah. to eat. I think just eating every step of the way is actually the most important thing to be able to. Because... I agree with you 100% on everything you're saying, but I know that we have people that listen to this that want to know more about our industry, and they're going to hear what you just said, and they'll be like, what the hell? They're cooks. Of course they should be tasting food. Why is that not a true statement for many It's not a true statement because when you're following, I think recipe actually like really gets between you and and the food. It it, it throws up this wall where instead of like responding to and really engaging with the sights, sounds, smells of the process and getting kind of connected to that and focusing purely on the deliciousness, which is a different, different thing every day because your ingredients are always changing. You're following a set of rules which require you to measure things and just completely detach from the process of cooking the food and thinking about how to make it get it to the end point of deliciousness. And I think it all, you know, following a recipe also kind of like inhibits the development of a chef in so many ways because you are instead of being responsive and sensitive, you're too busy with a scale. But I also think that you do, we're very lucky to be able to, to work this way because our kitchen has three people in it at any given time and we are both always there or one of us is always there. So I, think, I don't think it's something that's scalable necessarily. I think so much of what we value in terms of the teaching that we've had both, you know, at Ballymaloo with Dorina Allen, which is this wonderful cookery school in um, Cork, and obviously at the River Cafe and the people who sort of we've spent time with in between, you know, like they've really hammered in on like intuition when it comes to cooking. And like you first and foremost need to have an understanding of what you're cooking with and what your end result, what you want your end result to be. And that is, I can appreciate, I remember that being frustrating as a young cook, you know. I remember the first time I ever made pasta with this frightening chef at the River Cafe who's actually one of my good friends. And he just started pouring flour into this mixer and like cracking eggs. And I was, I was there with my notepad being, you know, so how many egg yolks? And he was like, Jess, you know, just shush, watch. And I was like, but how many grams of flour? And he was like, this changes every day. And I was like, but why? And he then subsequently went through a long sort of thought process of like, well, you know, how, like, where's your flour? Is it dry? How big are your eggs? Is it very, like, humid outside? Like, your your dough for your pasta is going to change each day and you need to have a solid understanding of what you're looking for. What do you need your end result to be? And how do you get there? Irrespective of how much flour I'm telling you to put in this bowl. And then you can um, get to the point where, like, with pasta, you have a basic recipe. Yeah, because, like, the humidity maybe doesn't make as much difference as the suggestion. But that starting point of, like, okay, you're not having a recipe, you're actually going to really think about this um, and understand how something is made is the foundation that you want all your cooks to have. Before we go on, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Day Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard, multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. 
ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate to the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. Today's Day Chang Show is also brought to you by Away. Away offers high-quality luggage at a much lower price by cutting out the middlemen and selling directly to you. Choose from nine colors and four sizes. The carry-on, the bigger carry-on, both of which are compliant with all major U.S. airlines, the medium or the large. All suitcases are made with premium German polycarbonate, which is lightweight and unrivaled in strength and impact resistance. And the 360-degree spinner wheels guarantee a smooth ride. Best of all, both sizes of the carry-on are able to charge anything that's powered by a USB cord. That's amazing. And thanks to their lifetime warranty, if anything breaks, Away will fix or replace it. Try it for 100 days, and if at any point you decide it's not for you, return it for a full refund, no questions asked. I love the Away carry-on. I have the bigger carry-on. It always fits in the overhead compartment. And most importantly, for someone that travels as much as I do, the charging is just a lifesaver. So for $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash Chang and use promo code Chang. That's C-H-A-N-G during checkout. That's awaytravel, one word, dot com slash Chang and use promo code Chang for $20 off your away suitcase. If you travel a lot, this is a great investment. And now back to the show. The funny thing is I was talking to Nathan Mirvold of Modernist Cuisine, who's this titan genius and is sort of codifying everything we do in a kitchen from a scientific point of view. And he was getting all these bread recipes and all around the world and pizza. And he's basically talking to all the greatest chefs that use intuition. And I was asking him, I was like, do you think that the people that make the best, say, you know, a loaf of bread in some town that they've never had a recipe, they're just doing calculations in their head every time. So it's not like flying by the seat of their pants. They're just like guessing. They're like, today it feels like this. So that means like I need to use less moisture. Today means like the, you know, the cherries are a little bit more acidic. So I'm going to do this. And he's like, yeah. And I... There was no conclusion. I just think that, again, part of this whole idea of being a simple, making simple food gets lost in, well, it can't be complicated. I think it's more complicated to make simple food. And you were talking about bravery in restraining yourselves to just make the most clean, delicious flavors. That's so hard to do. And I think that takes intuition because you need to know your ingredients. You need to have awareness of things that someone that's just following a recipe will never develop. And I liken it to when I talk to my own cooks, it's like, do you know how to get home if you're driving home without, you know, without a direction, set Mm. of directions, right? Like if you only like use your GPS, you're never going to learn a sense of direction. I feel like if you're a young cook, you should work. If you want to learn a sense of self with ingredients, this is an environment of king that you would want to like develop that. You're learning your relation to space, to other cooks and the ingredients. And I think that's a beautiful thing. That's we, lost. We really like getting like people that are, people that are totally green that have never cooked before because mm-hmm. they don't come with like pre-existing kind of expectations or rules or whatever. And they come in and we can just build that foundation in the way that we want it to look like. Why is it hard when you have someone that has? Like you, the, you know, the chef actually, from JG that came in. Yeah, but that's actually, there's also something to be said about the fact like Claire's totally right. Like I think that it's so lovely when we have someone who's green and they've come in from, um, they've got a bit of training somewhere. And you can kind of harness that and really kind of open their eyes to our style. And then you've got chefs who have come in from um, other fantastic restaurants who've had that training that we might not have even had. Um, and it's really exciting to be standing next to them, being like, "Hey, I want to make this, but you know, you, you've got more experience in like bread making. How I, this is how I do it. Would you do it like this?" And it really becomes this collaborative thing. Um, and and we, we're, we're the first to put our hands up and say to Kurt, hey, well, like, how would you approach it if it's something that we've not done before? We're not, you know, and I think that that's a nice, you know, like, way of It's creating. awesome when you hire someone that has skills that you don't, you don't because have, Because everybody yeah. in the kitchen gets just better. Um, but that's amazing because I'm also in the same boat. I love working with people that are better at things than me. But a lot of people feel that you can't show that 
weakness that you have to know oh, everything. We're very yeah, open to change. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, it, it just it, makes for a better environment. And we're it all depends, learning. Yeah, like the, that. I think that culture's taken a while to build. Mm. Like at the beginning, it was just us, so we didn't need to. We had no idea what we we're doing. We didn't need to kind of share that with anyone. Um, we tried to keep it under our hat. Yeah, <laughs> I think one of the you know one of the real like downsides that people don't necessarily talk about of like opening your own restaurant is that if you're not careful and if you are afraid of hiring people that are just better than you, then you're really not going to grow that much. Mm. Um, you know, my I every day I like read something or hear something else that someone's doing. I'm like, oh, I wish I could just go to Istanbul right now and work with this baker and learn how to make this like cardamom bread thing and you know I so badly want to be back in the learning seat and there's a whole you know set of learnings that we've discussed that you do when you're a business owner and you're a manager and you're you have the freedom to create your own style and actually serve it to people every night um but it's also when you get someone in your kitchen that can actually teach you something specific um that you would otherwise have to go and work somewhere else or like get a stage somewhere to kind of pick up it'd be so nice to I'd love to like part of me would love to just go to Paris I want to do like real like classic French training because it's so away from where from what I have and there's like I'm sad that maybe that will never happen maybe it will I don't know but you know to to continue to grow our own educate it's very hard you know we we read a lot we talk a lot we um eat a lot like but there's um, a real joy in having someone be next to you in the kitchen and say, hey, this is, how, this is how I've been taught to do it. And to take that on and to mull it over and kind of think about how we would do it in our style is like, it's kind of, it's... I think another part. side effect of like having your own place is that you kind of like don't want to eat that food anymore. I don't know if you feel this way, but I don't want to, I will not eat French or Italian food anywhere. And I have zero <laughs> desire to look at it, to taste. Oh. All I want is Asian. Like I, you know, I grew up in India and uh, and in the Middle East and I will choose Indian food or, you know, or Vietnamese or Lebanese or anything, any day. And, you know, I love the food that we cook at King. It's very like, it kind of, it feels natural for me to cook that. But even when I'm cooking at home, I cook nothing of the sort. My real, like, desire in learning is to, you know, I lived in India for seven years, but I didn't, like, master the cuisine. I didn't even learn to make anything other than dal. You're very good at eating. But, <laughs> yeah, but that's, like, a, the comfort food, and, like, I can't even cook it properly. Like, so my fantasy is to go on, like, a magical tour of the world where I get to go to those places, those places that really have yeah. my favorite foods and, you know, in some kind of eat, pray, love way, like go to Mexico and like, like, learn to make really All good soup or something. You should just do a massive yes sabbatical. Yeah. Go Let's talk way. after this podcast. I have okay. an idea about something. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Seriously, remind me. But, um, you know, I was thinking if you're a prospective young cook and you're like, I, I worked at um, LBE or someplace for like 10 years and they have some skill set that that they have over everyone else. They walk into your kitchen. The reason why I still think working for you guys, and I'm curious because I think it happens to myself as well. You have a lot of people that have one or two skill sets that are extraordinary, but they don't have the vision to figure mm. out how to implement it in any way. And you guys have had to figure out how to like essentially yeah. create a TV show every day. Well, I also think that that piece we've really struggled with because at first when we would have these cooks come in that even pre even pretended that they knew more than we did or whatever, it's not a competition, but there's this posturing with these cooks come into the kitchen and like I almost, you know, I know, I know, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. And then we were like, oh, okay, yeah, sure, have all the, you know, do whatever you want. And then we're like, wait a second, <laughs> <Yeah>. this is <laughs> not our vision, no. And so over the course of time, we've kind of, grown to have confidence that we actually do you know we didn't come in with a lot of experience but we came in with a very de definitive perspective on how we wanted people to eat and what that's a powerful thing but i think what i what i found so interesting about your previous podcast um was that like there was this real journey in terms of like the food that joe wanted to create and like this sort of realization that it could just be delicious and uh, we've never thought that it should be anything because of the way that we've been introduced to food like that has always been at the heart of everything that we've ever cooked or every in any way that we've been taught has been like it doesn't have to be anything more than just bloody delicious and I think so for cooks coming in from all these wonderful places and they're sort of being trained to think that food has to be so much more than just delicious what's interesting to see is it's sort of like as that kind of breaks away for them, the, that that realization 
can just be true of the food can be. And that's lovely to see. And and it's a weird thing as, yeah, you know, on, as, as chefs, like it can feel intimidating. And you've got these great chefs coming from all these amazing restaurants with more experience than we probably do have put together. But as our confidence has grown and like it's nice to be able to just share that like in a little way and and any glimmer of that kind of seeing a chef approach a dish or a, the way that they cook a soup in a way that they would never have cooked it before. I mean, that's sort of nice. You're like, wow. And that's not very articulate. No, but- it's very articulate because I feel like you're saying the same thing I say to myself all the time or I was talking to Joe about you know, Joe's worked for the greatest chefs in the world. And I see this, and I know you guys see this too, when people come in and they have, again, a great CV, but they don't have anything to say, right? They don't know how to implement anything they've learned in some kind of meaningful way that the customer might relate to, or you can cook something delicious. And I really believe that this is something that has to be like corrected in our industry, where just because you have this technique or this ability to make one dish or two or three doesn't mean that that's a cohesive experience or ultimately you're just worried about yourself too. You have no idea what the customer might not, might, might realize or taste. So I, I feel pretty strongly that what you guys are doing is so important because you're making food that you just said Tuscan bread soup. How many people make a Tuscan bread soup? In New York or? Or just like, the world at large. Yeah. It's a pretty commonplace thing. Yeah. But you can only go to your restaurant to taste your version of that. Even though it's made with the same ingredients the year round, like all over, like you guys are expressing the way you want it to be tasted in your restaurant. And that is what makes it so special, right? And I don't know how I can articulate that any better, but how you guys operate, how you guys have run the restaurant to the food that you make. Like you say, oh, you guys um, all worked at the River Cafe. Right. If you haven't been there, it's one of those restaurants you're like, I don't know why I love it so much. <laughs> right? You're like you leave that restaurant, you're like just happy. You're like, what the so fuck? Good. It's so good. Everything's so good. And I wanted to go there not liking it because it was so hyped up and like the three or four times I mean, my I husband there, does the exact same way. Yeah. And I felt like such a jackass. I'm like, why did I want to hate this? This is so good. There's this amazing um food critic in London. Sadly, he's passed away. He's Brilliant, um, A.A. Gill, one of the best food one writers. Of the best. And uh, he was like, I think the reason why I love the River Cafe so much is that the staff make me want to make me think that they all want to sleep with me. And he was like, and he was like, and, and it's such a great restaurant for so many reasons, but it's super sexy and it's just everything works. Yeah. Everything well, makes everything sense. is like vibrating in the same direction. Yeah. There's nothing that is overpowering the experience of eating. And so many restaurants, yeah. like the food is abstracted by like the decor and the music, music and the service. And there's like all these layers that are just like getting the way of you and your dinner or you and whoever you're eating dinner with. And it's it's a huge frustration. And I think they've done, the River Cafe has done a really unique job of distilling the dining experience to the food and your friends. And while creating an environment that is still super sexy, but also very like, Mellow. Simple. Yeah. Um, you've got the, you the know, colors work. The colors. Like, it's just, yeah. It's just, uh. and there's, there's not a whole lot of restaurants where the focus is as intensely on those essential components. But that's again, not easy to do. Yeah. Very difficult. And you guys, would you say your food is related to River Cafe-ish type of stuff or no? Yeah, I think, I think very much so. But, but the funny thing but, is, is, it's not, you know yeah. what I mean? Like yeah. from the photos and everything. And then the, the two times I've tasted your food, it's not like, I just, that's what I find about this business to be so amazing is that you guys are making food that people can relate to from a French and Italian point of view, but it's still your food. How the hell is that possible? You know what I mean? Like there's a, a sensibility, the zeitgeist of your food is your food. And I've always wondered, like, how can you do that? Like, there's all these people that make similar kinds of dishes. But if we went to all these restaurants, you'd know the tastes of those kinds of restaurants. Mm. So how is it that a customer that doesn't know your food is going to taste your food? Like, what do you what do you think there's, like, characteristics that they're going to get? Is it going to be something like they get in River Cafe? What makes it, like, yours? I think, I, think our, I think our menus are very different, but I think the underlying feature is that it just, it should kind of be knock your socks off tasty. 
if you look at the menu kind of as a whole, we don't try and do everything in each dish. Each dish doesn't have like a crunchy, a salty, a cheesy, a sweet, a creamy, like absolutely not. I think that across the course of the menu, we show all those different aspects of flavor, like acidity or like, you know, real, like a warm subtleness or something that's really robust and comforting. But we try and kind of focus on something in each dish um, with clarity rather than doing everything at once. So I think I think customers and also our cooks are often taken back by, oh, like this isn't very high in acid or, yeah. oh, this is just a plate of brown food. Why don't you, you know, add like some, some, some like, <laughs> you know, like little things or like crunchy bits. They're always or, like, alarmed at how little yeah. acid we cook. American cooks um, are always like, this needs more acid. And why, do you, why, why do you think that's the case with American cooks? I, I think they're used, as I said, to, I think to having each component on, on every like plate. Like quite bombastic dishes. Like loud dish. I think we're quite, I think a lot of our food is pretty tender and subtle. There's a subtlety in the flavor you know, for example, a white, like poached fish with white beans, like that is very kind of speaks to who we are in terms of there's an appreciation of the ingredient, i.e. we're choosing a fish that is, you know, beautifully fresh. We're going to do nothing to it but poach it. And then we're just going to cook some white beans. And that is the celebration of the ingredients, both ingredients, but also the architecture and the form on the plate, you know, just a nice piece of, you know, fillet. Filet, um, and, like, <laughs> and then you know the flavor is super subtle but delicious, and so I think that that sort of like exemplifies sort of how we try and think about dishes. Obviously, there are dishes that are louder Do than the opposite, that, and yeah. there are dishes that you know kind of contrast. It's like beautiful to me to hear that you guys in this day and age can follow your vision, which is like distinctly yours. Because I don't know if people give. Like anyone that does this, not just your food, enough credit to like not fall in line with what everyone wants, right? Like, I think, and this is maybe totally random and weird. There's a scene in uh, Jiro Dreams with Sushi where he's like talking shit about everyone that wants Toro in their sushi. <laughs> and he, it's not, it's a very, very like low key shit talk, but he's like, Akami is for someone that truly understands food. Because you have to have an appreciation of the ingredient. It's not easy to taste like the fattiness of Toro. Yeah, but like at the same, by the same token, it sounds like a super elitist. Like you have to have the appreciation of like the pure flavor of white fish. Like I think people, the reason why people like our restaurant is because you don't have to have a super high appreciation of anything. No. You can be completely uneducated in food and eat all of your meals like from a Trader Joe's microwave pack, but you're going to still come to our restaurant and we hope, think, oh my God, this is delicious. And that's because there's some element of nostalgia and the simplicity where everybody can find something to relate to and everyone's got taste buds and it should taste really good, like first and foremost. And then there's like different levels of different kinds of customers that find like, you know, you know, we'll be dazzled by the architecture of the natural forms on the plate. And we're like, oh, super cool. High five. That's where we're like, we're thinking those things too. But like most, you know. Just come in and have a panise and a bottle yeah, of wine. Yeah, I think I, like we're, we're really happy when anyone, mm. anyone with like, a, you know, a tongue can be like, oh, this tastes, this just tastes good. But I think that's also the restaurant in terms of the physical space. Like, so Obviously, you know, when Annie, Claire and I were, were, you know, this restaurant was coming into fruition, like the food was obviously a huge part of it, but a big, not as big of a part of it was the the dining experience and like the space and what were they going to drink and what were they going to sit on and what, you know, like what was the lighting going to be like? And that was very much, when we talked about what we wanted to create in terms of a restaurant space, the experience was as important as what we were planning or not planning on cooking. Um, you know, it was, it's a real 360. It wasn't just about the food at all. And two and a half years in, what's next for you guys then? Is it, you know, you know, I tried to get you guys introduced to someone for a project that got relaunched in New York. <laughs> and I was so pissed <laughs> because, you know, I forgot about that. No, yeah, I, I, I never did because you know what? After you guys got your profile in New York Times dining section, I got an email from the same dude. And I was like, dude, I think you missed your boat, man. Like, <laughs> we, I don't know. We like, we kind of bat everybody off. We just don't want to. 
uh, we like want to do things, um, but we just want to do them right. And, you know, we also feel a sense of like commitment to those people that believed in us before the New York Times wrote a profile on us. And um, Which if you haven't read, go read. It's amazing. I mean, such a, it was unbelievable. We had no idea the size of the piece. And so we thought it'd be like a little footnote. And then when it came out, we were like totally underprepared. There was like a queue around the block. That, I mean, yeah. that's the kind of thing that once, ha- like that. Like, I was so happy so for lucky. you guys. Yeah. Um, and it changes your business. Um, for both good and bad. Uh, you know, I don't for think, good. I think it really changed it for good. I think things that can change your restaurant for bad are like being on a hot list on Eater. Mm. And then you have all these people queuing up and then they get in, they're like, why did we wait for this? And because there's no explanation of... Would, a Michelin, would you ever want to have a restaurant that gets like three Michelin stars? It's just not possible. It's not, not going to happen. <laughs> it's never going to happen. <laughs> No way. <laughs> Unless you know someone. <laughs> oh, we couldn't. We can't even get one. Yeah. <laughs> you never know. Uh, no, like we uh, we went through. We're like this year. We're like, oh, maybe I she had a just dream. had a dream. So we were like, wait, you know, we had told our host if Michelin calls tonight, you know, we're going to shut down the restaurant. Of course, no one rang other than like customers completely. Like, well, they got <laughs> so never, we'd never ever, we'd never ever thought about Michelin Star. No. Top fifty, all this nonsense that's out there. I don't think there. that's for all. I. I don't know. God well, bless I don't you know. guys. God bless you. I don't know. <laughs> sure, we'll take it. <laughs> but but like other opportunities, because again, even though I don't know you that well, what I what I cherish to me was you guys mean it, right? And there's a sense of honesty that. I don't see that often in this business. And someone was asking me, like, who do you think we're going to do this thing? I was like, I I don't know if it's something they want to do, but you should talk to them. And before you say yes to anything, you should say no to tons yeah, and yeah. tons of things. And I think, if, you know, with that, with that, like, whatever, like, authenticity that we're aiming for, like, most opportunities just don't, like, Mm. Oh, you know, we, I, you ask yourself every single day why you do this, and it's very clear because you love to cook, you love to feed people, and hospitality is like this urgent thing that's like in your body that you want to do. And not a, not a lot of opportunities that come to us actually cater to the need to cook, to feed people, and to give hospitality. Like, and if those are your like check boxes for doing something most things are like a pass feel the same way yeah I mean (laughs) and also there's a real sense of wanting to continue what we're doing at King to uh, this level a better level like I think we want to keep doing what we're doing. And the size, the size of the restaurant no, is... No, it's too small we definitely need to do something else we're like we're We're bursting at the seams moving King? No, Mm. I don't think so we just love it too much but (laughs) But yeah, we don't have room for anything. Our restaurants, you know, we don't have room to fit more than three people in the kitchen. Some days oh, we've just got like itching for a bigger kitchen. Yeah. There's like spices hanging from the ceilings and like That's all I was thinking was that you guys would love to have just the space. Like if we yeah. have the space to cook, like yeah. we just want a kitchen that you can to cook go in. and cook in. <laughs> like the other day I was filleting a fish and it didn't even fit on the bench. I was like, yeah. for God's sake, I can't even like it is we are I think that makes you a better cook. I really do. Yeah, you know, I I think that constraints actually like allow you to be your most creative. Creative, yeah. When you when you write a menu in a vacuum, it's kind of, you know, it's one thing, but when you write one with a like a very serious set of limitations from the produce that you can actually get to the equipment, uh, the that, equipment we that we've got and the space that we have and the cooks that we actually have cooking that day and what they can push out without compromising quality on the line. Like that's when real, really great ideas bubble to the surface. I couldn't be in more agreement. We've had to be very creative. Uh, but you would never have learned this had you had a kitchen that had everything. Yeah, maybe, maybe but it's much but harder. Sometimes we're like, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful? Like we did a whole suckling pig because we wanted to do it one day. And it didn't fit in the oven, and we <laughs> literally were like, oh dear, it doesn't fit in the oven. Like so often these things kind of come to bite us. But you know, you do have to uh, get a bit creative. But, um, so staying downtown, would you? If you did another downtown. space that had a bigger kitchen, you'd want it downtown. Yeah, I think so. I think I mean it, West Village, NoHo area. Yeah, preferably right next door to King. Yeah. <laughs> so anyone that's listening that has a, a perfect space with a good rent, we'll give you a finder's fee. <laughs> uh, one last question, uh, 
you brought something up. The frustration, I think, is something I feel. And I don't like being pigeonholed by anyone else uh, about the kinds of food we can make. I've never once said we make Asian food at our restaurants, even though we serve everything. You can get tired of making the food that you make from the region, which is going to be what Provence and yeah. it, like Northern yeah. Italy. Yeah, all so over, all over, all over. Italy, yeah. And you want to make food from India, Vietnamese. And obviously, like, I admire your ability to keep yourself edited and restrained. What is preventing you from putting ingredients from around the world on your menu? That's sneaking in. That's so. sneaking. I think that um, I think that there's another restaurant there, and a lot of learning to be done as well. Yeah. I, you know, learning you, when I cook Indian food, like I read a recipe first, put it away, and then make the biryani or make the dosa. But I think to do a restaurant and actually, you've got to be able to cook that food blind um, to do it well. I love your like cultural appropriation mm. arguments. I, I I stand with you, um, but to do anything, you've got to be able to do it really, really, really well. well. And I think there's just a lot of education between you know, myself and South Indian or myself. Maybe, maybe when we do our year's yeah. sabbatical, we'll come back with that. Yeah. yeah. Can you can you guys do a year sabbatical? No. Um, no. Well, <laughs> who knows? I talk about this shit all the time, too. People think I'm insane. Um, Dreams. One day. So. I think we're also nice. I think, you know, British food. I mean, I don't know it has like I a, used to, but now I'm over it. Oh, what, 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 I know. British it, food. I, don't, there is, I feel like it, it, I mean, could do with a little bit of a revisit. Like, I think. Or where, a celebration Where Noma's at, for instance. Like, they were like almost militant about what they were allowed to use for years. And I always say that they cooked in black and white. And they took that as far as they can go. And now the menu is still Danish and Scandinavian, but like weirdly not. Because now they're creating ingredients with Danish ingredients, like so it can taste like other things. Well, I, well, I think that's really cool as well, because talking about like bravery and boredom, like if you're not being brave, you're probably a little bit bored. And they were at the, like, height of their success. And they decided to, like, back away from that, go back to the drawing board and rethink something. And I really respect that. Because when something's working, I mean, everything can be working very well optically from the outside. But if you're, like, losing that spark or that desire to eat your food or cook your food or think of new ideas, like, you should always go back to the drawing board. So many questions for you guys. I could talk to you. There's, we, we will hopefully continue talking to you guys at a later date. I want you guys to get out of here. I don't want to take more of your time. Thanks for listening, guys, to my conversation with Jess Shadbolt and Claire DeBoer, two of the best chefs, young chefs in New York City. And um, they have a very special restaurant, and I hope to see their sort of careers grow and uh, work on new projects because I am completely and utterly jealous of their teamwork and the sort of creative vision that they have together and the accountability that they hold each other to. Um, Time to get to an Ask Dave at MajorDomoMedia.com question. Again, thank you for sending in questions to Ask Dave at MajorDomoMedia. Jason Akahoshi asked, are there chef trees like there are coaching trees in the sports world? Who was the Bill Walsh or Dean Smith of the culinary world? Thanks for sending in the question, Jason, to ask Dave at majordomomedia.com. I think the chef trees are real, and I do think of the sports world very parallel to the culinary world. And I'll just list one or a couple. Like I think one of the major ones to come out of France is the Trois Brothers, and they have a restaurant in Rouen, France, that is arguably one of the most famous restaurants ever in modern Western cuisine because effectively they created plating as we know it today, which is an insane thought. The Tuagro brothers created a restaurant that had never been, just never happened. And what's more important besides them creating iconic dishes and the kind of plating that we have today, the Tuagro brothers created a system of cooking that was widely imitated by many, many of their pupils. And I can't name all the chefs that came through their doors. And now you have Michel and his son. They've taken over from obviously their father and uncle. But if you listed out all the chefs that came out of that restaurant group, it would be pretty insane. And how they uh, essentially 
ushered in a new era of nouveau cuisine. So I don't know if they would be the Bill Walsh. I think Bill Walsh, to me, has always been sort of Joel Robichon because Robichon was about systemizing excellence and fine dining. And whether that was him at Maxime's in Paris when he retired at age 50 to what he did at L'Atelier Robichon around the world, I think he was able to get to a close to two, three Michelin star level almost time and time again because he figured out a system and I always thought that it was sort of the West Coast offense because it was about precision. It was about knowing when to put flourishes on a dish and also just timing. And he was a master at figuring out how to systemize that in a way that no one else ever had. And obviously, many, many people have come through his doors, most famously Air Repair from La Bernardin. But I think he's had a massive influence on chefs like Danielle Hume of 11 Madison Park. And just his school of thought is incredibly effective and very difficult to do. So Bill Walsh, to me, is sort of Joel Robichon. On the other end of the spectrum in sports, you have someone like Alice Waters. And I think that is probably in America, outside of maybe David Boulay and Thomas Keller, maybe the most significant family tree because of how the world eats today and the celebration of local produce. And Alice Waters would probably be like the Pittsburgh Steelers or something like that. Like how they've only had like three or four coaches over so many years of existence or it's Chuck Knoll or Bill Cower now with Mike Tomlin. Like it's a very steady influence. And the people that come from that sort of train of thought, there's a Steeler way. And to me, that's just very parallel to the Chez Panisse way. And there are variations of it, but the embracing of that philosophy is pretty easy to identify. And the chefs that have come through that, they all are different, but they all come from the same lineage. And it's about purity of product and celebrating food in a way that America never really did. And it's about culture and it's about, I don't know. I I think about Chez Panisse and I think about the Steelers. I always have, I always will. And tell me if I'm wrong, but when you think about all the Super Bowls the Steelers have won and how like year in, year out, they're always considered the best. It's hard to consider Alice Waters not one of the best. In terms of who's a Bill Belichick, I don't know. I always think about who's Bill Belichick. And you know what? You know what would be fun one day is to sort of break down each sort of chef school, restaurant, or culinary technique into a kind of coach or football team or organization because that would be an interesting way to, to look about it and to think about it. But like... Probably the most significant school to me right now is um, obviously either Ferran Adria School or Alain Passard. And we've talked about that in the past. So without getting too food geeky, I think that the two most dominant global ways of thinking about food are either the Ferran Adria School, which is essentially he didn't moneyball it, but it's like embracing analytics simply by having to ask the question why so many different ways and creating a new way of cooking which was, again, widely imitated, much like analytics and sports has been, without actually using the data. Maybe they did the data. Anyway, in the Passard school, I have a hard time finding a sports analogy because I don't know if that's accurate. Maybe it's not football or basketball. Maybe it's a soccer, but I don't know soccer that well. Anyway, I could talk endlessly about this. Maybe we'll get a couple chefs in one day to talk about this and, and a couple food writers, but sports and how the culinary world is sort of organized is really it's just fucking important to think about in my world. So, yeah, that's pretty much it. Thanks for sending in that question, Jason. Please keep on sending questions in to askdave at majordomomedia.com. Give us five stars, however you rate this, on Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. Stay tuned next week. Thank you so much, guys. <laughs> <laughs>